Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to someone that's very interesting, got a fascinating story to tell, and I think will be pretty interesting for um, a range of people um, someone who's got very high resilience and a very interesting perspective on the world. So I'd like to talk, I'd like to introduce you to Anu Thompson. Hi Anu, how are you? I'm very well, Russell, how are you? I'm at the middle, at the minute, sitting in the, in the garden, enjoying the heat wave, which, which has descended on the UK, which is great. How about oh, you? lovely. It's great, isn't it? That's, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, it is. It's, it's fabulous. Long may it last. <laughs> Oh, as if we'll all be complaining about the rain again in two days' time. Yeah. I must stop whittering on about the weather. I always go on about the weather. Anywho, so Anu, how would you describe who you are and what, certainly what you do at the moment? Uh, well, Russell, I am a barrister. Um, I have been a barrister for about uh, 23 years, I think it is now. And um, I do a variety of things. Um, I uh, I sit as a part-time judge in the Crown Court. Um, I work for different uh, healthcare regulators. I do training. I do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I sit on the board of one of the, the legal regulators. So um, I do a whole mixture of things. But primarily, I suppose, my, my primary qualification, if you like, is a barrister. Right. And a barrister as opposed to a solicitor. Uh, that's an important difference. No, it is a very important difference. And uh, yes, I'm a member of the of the bar of England and Wales. Fantastic. Well, so 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 tell me your story then, Anu. Where, where where did all this start? Uh, well, uh, I was born in India, going right back to the beginning. Um, but I was brought up in Glasgow, and uh, my parents uh, were doctors or are doctors. And um, I was an only child, uh, I'm an only child, and um, I went to a very small uh, girls' school in Glasgow. And um, the thing is, you know, when you're, a, when you're the only child, two doctors, everybody expects you to be a doctor. Yeah. And uh, um, I don't really like being terribly conventional. And I think perhaps because the expectation was that I was going to be a doctor, I was determined that I wasn't going to be a doctor. Um, and uh, when I got into secondary school I found that I was really interested in public speaking and debating and I found out I was quite good at it and that was the sort of beginning of, of thinking about um, doing law and I don't know I don't know if you remember um, Russell back in the 70s a programme called Crown Court on ITV yes that's um, brilliant I was I was completely addicted to Crown Court. I just thought it was the best thing ever. Um, and, um, and that was my sort of first window into this world of, of wigs and gowns and, and, and so on. Um, and in a way, I don't know whether, because I didn't really know anything about it, although my, my, um, my mother's family back in India were all lawyers, um, you know, we didn't know anybody here. Um, we weren't um, part of that sort of establishment who knew about law or anything like that. Um, and in a way, I think that probably really helped because I, I wasn't put off by it. I didn't think, oh, this isn't world for the likes of me. I just thought, oh, that looks like good fun. Uh, that's the sort of thing that I want to do. And, and I sort of got on and, and, and did it. So 
Um, so that's what I did. Um, I went off to university in, um, in Colchester in Essex and um, did my law degree there. Um, and, I, you know, I had a sort of, I had a very clear idea in my mind that I was going to be the, that barrister that I'd seen on Crown Court addressing judges and addressing juries. Um, and I had a very sort of single-minded, focused determination that that's what I was going to do. And, and I was very fortunate that that's what I ended up doing. So that's really interesting. So, so you say you were born in India and came to to um, Scotland. Was that was that your parents moved over or something? Yeah. Hmm. So how? Yes. Yeah, you... So my parents came. Over. We sort of dotted around a bit. We were in Yorkshire for a bit and, and various other places in England, and then and then we moved to to Glasgow. Um, and really, yeah, just following following my parents' work basically wherever they got work, we went. And so, do you still have family in India and such? Yeah, I've got a large extended family in India. Um, my grandparents, um, I, I didn't really know my grandparents. My, my um, uh, only, uh, the, the two of them died when I was very young, and two of them died before I was born. So um, uh, we have extended family, but really, it, you know, it's it's always been me and my mum and dad, basically. <laughs> um, contrary to that sort of, I think there's a perception here that, you know, Asian families are huge um, affairs and their aunties and uncles all over the place. Um, but we just never had that. It was, it's, it was always, still is just the three of us really. Yeah. Um, so do you feel rooted to? Do you feel your roots are in in Glasgow, or would you say they were still back in India? Where where, where do you consider? How, how do you think about that? Oh, definitely Scotland. You know, if anybody asks me um, where you're from, I, I would immediately say Scotland. Um, I think my mum and dad, they probably find that less difficult now. I think they probably did find that difficult before um, because I think they would also say, if somebody asked them where they were from, they would say Scotland. Um, so um, very much rooted in Scotland. But then having said that, you know, we used to go back to India every summer. Summer holidays were spent in India with extended family. Um, but um, I've always felt very Scottish. But with, you know, very much with that diff slightly different perspective because I've come from, you know, that's where I was born and that's where my parents are from. And, um, you know, that brings with it a different um, outlook on some things and a different cultural approach to a lot of things. Um, but having said that, I think my parents were very, um, you know, they cottoned on to this long before people had, I mean, this was the 70s, you know, long, long before people had started talking about integration and multiculturalism and so on. Um, my mum and dad were very much of, well, okay, what, what do you need? What's going to help you get on in the world and actually being part of this, um, of British culture and British society is what's going to help you and so that's what we're going to do um, and you know I think that was pretty pretty far-sighted of them at that, that time. Yeah because there must have been challenges I mean you know because it could be it could be tough for you know someone like yourself in in Scotland at the time because as you say it was the 70s and, uh, and there were all sorts of problems at that time in the, in the world you know around multiculturalism and such like so how did that work out? Oh yeah Oh, it was, it was really, you know, it was really difficult sometimes. And, you know, when I remember when I first started school in, in Glasgow, I was the first um, brown person to, to come into the class. And um, and uh, none of the other girls quite knew what to, to make of me. And, and they didn't want to talk to me because I used to wear, I had very long hair, and I used to wear it in two plaits 
And the only sort of people they'd seen who were brown and had two plaits were Indians, red Indians, you know, on the TV. And um, and so they didn't want to talk to me because they were they were worried I would um, shoot them with a bow and arrow. Um, and uh, in the end, one of the the older girls from one of the the senior classes had to come and sort of try and get the other children to talk to me and play with me and and, and so on because they were scared. Um, so you know that 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 was hard. And I was what four or five. Um, but you know that's a hard thing, um, and so that was that was difficult. Um, and then you know, I, yes, in Glasgow, it's funny. I mean, Glasgow now is very multicultural, but even then, there uh, I feel much more aware of the fact that I'm not white when I go back to Glasgow than I do, you know, when I'm in London working, um, which is quite interesting. But um, yes, back in seventies, it, it was very different, and. Um, and quite hard, and I think my parents put up with a lot of uh, a lot of difficulties as well. But um, it we kind of I think partly because we didn't really know any difference, we just I've got on with it really. Yeah. Um, I, I think looking back on it now, my mum and dad probably found it hard, you know. And I've got I've got kids of my own now, and I, I know how school culture works, and and I think you know it's totally different to anything my mum and dad ever knew and I think they, they found that quite difficult my mum particularly so it was it, it wasn't easy but then as I said we just got on with it because we didn't really know any different and, do, and do, I mean, you're a very um, successful person now do you think yeah. you do you think you grew some of that determination and that that you know that sort of thick skin almost as it were at, at, that, at that time I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm terribly thick-skinned. I think it was more that um, I, I didn't really see the difference. I think that was. I think that's my 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 perspective, or has been my perspective all all the way through. And it used to frustrate my mum. I think because you know she. I think she was much more aware of it. And you know when I said I wanted to go into law and everything else, she was really worried. You know how how was I going to get on in this this very establishment male white dominated profession. But I didn't really think about it. I, you know, I all I ever thought about was that I was the person I was. I was good at some things. I wasn't very good at other things. And I kind of forgot that other people saw me any differently. Yeah. And I think that that really was the way I approached things, and and the way I still do. And um, I I tend to think that that's what's helped me along the way because it's very difficult. I think if you go through life, um, you know, with that message of well I, I'm no different to you it's very difficult for the person that you're you're in contact with or, or interacting with to continue to treat you differently if, if you're not letting them if you, if you know what I mean so I think that was part of it um I I just maybe I, I'm not sure it's being thick-skinned I think part of it was just naivety and part of it was just a, a, being oblivious to it really yeah, yeah. I, I mean I, but I, I noticed that you said that you had this real clear idea of what you wanted to do and, and when I was a youngster as well I had a very yeah. clear idea of what I had to do and I think sometimes that's that that allows you to ignore some of the other stuff because you, you sort of know where you're going and so some of the noise around yeah. you can vanish a bit can't it yeah I think that I think that's true and also I was um you know, I liked being good at things, and once I found what I was good at, that was the that was the thing that was my focus. And you know, I, I liked 
having people around me saying, you know, you're good at that, you need to be able to use that. And, and that's what my focus was all on. And, and I was in an environment where I was um, valued um, for what I could do and what I was, um, uh, for my talents and for my personality. And because I was valued for those things, you, you kind of, if, if you're in that sort of supportive environment, um, you, you tend not to, some may say it's a, it's a very sort of, um, uh, what's the word, um, it's a very protected and, and unrealistic environment because you then have to go out into the world. Um, but, but I think that probably helped me because it, it, it allowed me to focus on what I did want to do and, and gave me the support for that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And it, you must see the contrast between your own school life and the school life of your kids, how attitudes have changed about the sort of safety and sanctity of school versus the real world. And, you know, it's... Yes, no, it's... Go on, I was going to say, I just yeah. say it's so different, isn't it? It is, and, and I think um, I think it's a good thing in, in some ways because um, I got a bit of a shock when I went out into the real world. Um, but not necessarily... Well, the, the race thing, actually, I, what I found quite difficult was not really what people would expect. I went to a university where... Um, there was a very large London Asian contingent, and um, I was not at all like those people. And I got much more hostility from other Asians when I went to university than I ever did from any non-Asian people. Right. Um, and I, I found that real. I found that a real shock. Um, and, and I struggled with it, and I did struggle with the sort of reality of, of, of life when I went to university, having been in this this very, um, not quite mollycoddled, this very protected and positive and, and um, nurturing environment. And I do look at my kids who, as you say, are now in an environment where they are taught uh, and, and told about the world in a much more realistic fashion, and I think that's a good thing, you know, because um, I think it builds their personal resilience, which uh, in this, in a working environment and culture that we live in now, I think is absolutely essential. Because if you don't have that personal resilience, then um, you know you, you become a casualty uh, fairly early on. Yes. So parenting is a, is, is really important, an important thing, isn't it? It's, it's about you know, making sure that praise is distributed properly and such like. And that work applies to the workplace because otherwise you end up with these sort of childlike behaviours happening in the workplace as well. So that can be a challenge, can't it? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yes, I've come across a lot of that. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so um, so you went to university and you, and you become a barrister. That sounds like a very easy thing yeah. when you say it. So how does that, that process actually just work? Do you, you, so do you leave university and... You know, and then you become an immediately yeah. um, a rich person. No, no, I wish. <laughs> um, so I, I, um, I went to university, did a law degree, and um, I, there are different routes into the profession depending on on what sort of uh, degree you do. So I did a law degree, which meant that um, I could go straight into. You have to do a year's um, professional training, sort of. It's like a postgraduate. Of course, effectively, um, and at the time that I was doing it, was only one place in London that offered it, and um, I went there. You had to get two one to get in, and um, which was new. They they, they kept changing it, um, changing the entrance requirements. And but the year that I did it, that's what you needed to do, and um, 
And I moved to London and uh, didn't know anybody, uh, didn't quite know what was going on. Um, and I arrived on my uh, for my first day at uh, what I call bar school, it's now totally different. Um, and what happens after you do your year at bar school, you then do a year's um, what's called pupillage, which is a placement effectively with a, a senior member of the bar. And you basically follow him, him or her around for a year. Um, to complete the last part of your training and um, and I arrived and I knew that that was something I was going to have to apply for while I was at doing my bar course and I arrived on the first day and you meet all these new people and they say oh uh, you know how, how many applications have you done and I thought hmm, I haven't done any and um, and I realized that actually I was missing the boat. Now was the time, you know, this was September, October, you're starting your course and um, you're due to start your pupillage the following September, October and everybody else is busy getting their applications in and doing interviews and, and, and the application process is different from how it was then. Um, uh, it's different now to how it was then. Then you had to apply to individual sets of chambers where barristers work together uh, for pupillage. And I just, I got the shock of my life. I hadn't realised, nobody told me. I hadn't, in all my detailed research, because obviously I, nobody I knew knew anything about going to the, um, being a barrister. Um, but I hadn't realised that that was the timing of it. So I, I came home in a complete panic um, and uh, desperately trying to then run off um, as many applications as I could. And of course, this is back in the day with, um, all handwritten applications. I had to try and get my CV typed up somewhere and copied, and um, it was a, a bit of a panic, put it that way. <laughs> so, um, so it was easy, um, and um, and I did lots of applications, lots of interviews, and uh, and eventually I got a placement um, in in two different sets for six months each, um, doing criminal pupillage. Not that not the best sets in, in London, not the you know the top notch ones who at that time were beginning to, to pay their pupils. I had I had two six months that were completely unfunded. So you, you go along basically um, uh, in the second six months, if you go along to court and you should do cases on your own, you'll be paid for them. But otherwise, you don't get any money at all. So, um, so uh, becoming rich didn't really enter into it, certainly not at that stage. I, I don't think. I mean, the idea of being an intern is quite, seems seems to have been invented by this current workforce. But people forget that actually it's a very yes. old and established tradition in the law to do that pupillage for free, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Oh, it was, and and you know, it was only as as it began to dawn on um, the powers that be that actually, if you wanted a more socially diverse profession, then that was going to have to go. You know. And and for all, I might be uh, might tick a lot of the sort of minority um, boxes in, in lots of other senses. You know, I, I was the daughter, only daughter of two doctors who um, were able to fund me. I mean, they weren't rolling it by any stretch of the imagination, but they were able to fund me um, through that year in London and you know through my early years of practice. Um, and of course, this is back in the day when when my degree had been free. I'd managed to persuade my local authority back in Glasgow to, to pay for at least some of my postgraduate course. Um, so, you know, it was a very different world. Mm. But um, but we were still in that sort of idea of, you know, my parents were, were very much, you, you get a, a pupillage and it doesn't matter if it's not paid, you know, we, we'll support you. And then I was very fortunate in that. Um, so 
Um, I, I think things have moved on now. I, I don't think you can you can't have a pupillage that's unfunded. It's not allowed. But um, it's you know that wasn't that long ago. It was what, twenty years, twenty twenty five years ago. Yeah, fascinating. So you become a barrister, and you how's, and so you're yeah. you're standing and presenting a, a case for either defence or prosecution. Is that how it works? Yes. Yeah. So you start off with your six months following somebody else around. And um, then you start, after you've done those six months, you start on your, you, you, it's called getting on your feet. Um, uh, and that is exactly what you do. Yeah. <laughs> you get up uh, and start um, defending and, and prosecuting. And, and that's what I started doing. And I had my first ever case, which was um, dangerous parking trial at uh, Redbridge Magistrates Court, uh, for which I, I was never paid, I must have, uh, have to say. Uh, it was a privately funded uh, case and the client never paid. So that was my illustrious start in the law. Fantastic. Um, but it was great fun. And, but you know, you've, you've got to remember, I don't know how things are for pupils nowadays, but certainly for me, uh, you are the the lowest of the low. You know, you really are at the bottom of the pecking order. And um, I was doing pupillage at the time when um, there was a thing called the ten pound brief. And what would happen would be that um, uh, solicitors who send barristers their work, they would they would say to chambers, "Oh, um, if you give us a pupil to go and do this, you know, lowly appearance in the magistrates' court." Um, for a tenor, then uh, we'll give Chambers, you know, somebody senior in Chambers, a really good piece of work, um, you know, uh, 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 and that was the deal that was done. So I did a number of £10 briefs at my time, and, and if you think about it, by the time you get across to Essex or, or Hertfordshire or wherever it is, you have to go and do this appearance, and you've paid for your travel, and, and, and that's it. So you don't actually make any money, you very often make a loss. Um, but but we just we, we kind of put up with it because that was that was what was expected and that's how you got on. Um, but I can't imagine you know, the gener you know the younger generation now um, thinking that that was acceptable. But we just did it. Yes, yeah, it's funny how attitudes change, isn't it? And um, yeah. So what's it like standing up in court? I mean, nervous, stressful, exciting, exhilarating. How, 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 all, oh. all of those things. All of those things, absolutely thrilling. I just loved it. And um, I still do, you know, I still, um, I don't do it very often these days, actually stand up in court myself and, and, and argue. But um, it is, it's all of those things. It's, it's nerve wracking. It's, um, it's exhilarating. It is, it's one of the best feelings in the world, really. And, um, but I think if, you know, naturally, I think every barrister is um, is a bit of a showman. You know that that is what it's about, and and it's your opportunity to to be um, to be centre stage for a moment or two, um, and so everybody everybody loves that. I think as you get on and you realise that it's not all about you, um, <laughs> you become a better advocate. Um, but certainly at the beginning. Um, that, that's how you feel, and um, I mean, and, and I made some appalling mistakes. I mean, I was really bad on some cases because I didn't know what I was doing, um, and, and I think that was the same for all of us. Because you, you know, you watch somebody 
who's really senior for six months, who's doing really you know difficult, complex cases, and then you go off to do a dangerous parking trial. You know, you've never seen what a dangerous parking trial looks like, um, and, and you're trying to make all these really grandiose points when really all the magistrate wants to know is well, how far away from the pavement was he parked? You know, so. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, you know, pretty cringe-making, I'm sure, um, at, at the beginning. But I think we all were, and that's and that's part of the, um, I think, the charm uh, of of the profession, really. So, moving now from being a barrister to becoming a judge, how, how does that how does that leap work? Well, um, traditionally, I suppose it it works in that um, you continue barristering for a number of years. And, um, and now what happens is um, the Judicial Appointments Commission will advertise when they're doing a, what's called a recorder competition. So if you're a part-time uh, judge, um, you can become a recorder. And, um, and there's a very sort of rigorous um, recruitment process. Um, I sort of went about it slightly more unusually because um, I didn't stay in, in self-employed private practice. Um, and in fact, I stopped practicing crime after about 10 years um, because I stopped to have my family. And so um, it was, you know, I, I always held that ambition to, to be a judge. Um, but when the time came to have a family and, and uh, I took the decision that I was going to actually stop working um, rather than try and juggle work and, and young children, so um, I took six years out um, to have, have the children. And I think at that point in time, I, I wasn't sure whether I'd ever actually return to the law, whether I'd actually return to work at all. Um, and I, and I, I definitely thought at that point, well, that ambition to be a judge was very firmly in a box and wasn't likely to come back out again because I'd, I'd made that choice. Um, and, uh, and so I never really thought it would happen. Right. Um, so, yes, it was, it was it certainly wasn't, I, I didn't think I would be where I am now at that point, certainly. So, I mean, it might be a terrible perception, but I get the, I, I, I assume there aren't that many female judges. There are more, um, and I think um, women of, of my sort of experience and my sort of age are uh, becoming judges more, and, you know, there's a higher proportion of them than there ever has been before. Um, but naturally, it takes time for that to come through. But I think the, the difficulty, you know, I um, I sit on the board of the Bar Standards Board, and, and you know, the, the, the Bar Standards Board, who's the regulator of, of uh, barristers, um, did a survey um, last year, um, and it was called Women at the Bar Survey, and it, it asked for responses from all the women who are um, at the bar. And there's a huge drop-off, um, you know, men and women coming into the profession uh, come in at roughly equal numbers. But um, by the time um, you go sort of further down the line, five years, 10 years, 20 years after first being admitted into the profession, um, the number of men left far outweighs the number of women. And there is that huge drop-off. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of work being done to try and, and understand that and, and find out what can be done to encourage women to stay in the profession. So, um, 
I think when you bear that in mind, the number of women who are coming through into judicial posts is quite encouraging. When you when you think actually there is a, a much smaller pool to choose from to start with because of that that drop off rate. But when I went off to do my my training, when I became a recorder, um, you know, I was really pleased to see there were the vast majority of people around me were women. Um, and we were all of a similar sort of age. Um, so, so that was really encouraging. But when I go off to judge, when I have to go off to the Crown Court and, um, and I go into the dining room at lunchtime, yes, it's still predominantly uh, white men in their 50s or, or above. But I think that's changing. Right. That's good. So if you're, if, you're, if you're younger or you're thinking about a career in the law, that shouldn't be a barrier. I, I don't think so. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think it's very easy to be put off, um, and I, I don't ascribe to this this notion. I think that was very popular um, in the late nineties and early two thousands. If you want something enough, you will get it. I, I don't believe that. Um, I think you've got to have the ability and, and the, the talent, and, and wanting something isn't enough to get it. But I think if you do have the ability and the talent and the determination um, and the ability to be resilient and flexible and, and, and maybe not just follow um, the path that you think you should follow, but be prepared to be open to new ideas, new challenges, then I think um, if, you, if that's what you want to do, then you shouldn't be put off by that. Um, because I think um, there is opportunity for those who who are good. I think people who are really good um, will come to the top. But I do, but I think you've got to contrast that with I've seen many. You know I've done a lot of recruitment for pupillage in my time. I've I've seen a lot of youngsters come into the law, and um, as I say, there's been they've been sold this sort of um, idea, this notion that if you if you really want something, then it, that's fine. You you should you should be allowed to to go for it and get it. And you know, in the meantime, you rack up tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt, and and are heartbroken at the end when you don't get it. Um, it's really, really hard to get into, um, and I don't think people should be, um, but be naive about that. But if you do really want it and you do have the ability, then I don't think people should be put off by the notion that it is all um, white men who who get to the top. So, so that's interesting. You've raised a, uh, an intriguing point there because I think there's been. I remember reading a book ten years ago, probably the same time you were reading them, and and it was called The Power of Intention. And all you had to do was to believe, and it would come yeah. true. And and whilst there is evidence that shows you can program your brain to be more effective in the future, you're absolutely right. This idea of yeah. um, and a guy called Gary Vanacek on the internet talks a lot about this about this idea of talent. And application, yeah. Now, you know, and this, and, and of course, yeah. there's this, and of course, in sport and such like, you'll say that the harder you work, the more talented you become. And this, and there is a, there is a, there's something that's really important that people forget that you have to work at your craft. You know, you didn't become a yeah. barrister overnight. You didn't become an expert overnight. It took years and years and years of expertise. And I think people yeah. forget that in the sort of very in the sort of slightly more you know instantaneous culture we live in that this idea of work is really yes. important i mean you've grafted haven't you to get where you are it's not it's not that you didn't sort of rock up one day and then and there you were people forget i think no. i think there's something missing at the moment yeah. isn't there about this idea of hard work good i think so well i i don't know i i think there is but i think there's also this idea you know i've interviewed so hundreds of people over the years for pupillage and you see these very earnest young kids coming in 
and they desperately want it. You know, they really, really want it. And and you know, the que- the last question was always, you know, why should we offer you a pupillage? And 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 they would always say, all of them say, you know, I'd really work for you. I'd really work hard. I'd I'd do anything you want me to do, basically. And um, and that used to really not irritate. It's not the right word. I I kind of. I wanted to say, well, that's a given. Of course, you're going to work really hard. Um, but what is, what else is it that you have got that is going to make you into a good barrister? Because there are hundreds, thousands of people who want to be barristers who are prepared to work for it. Um, and and I think, I think you're right. I think we've kind of got to this. Um, we've come, it, it sort of come round. The pendulum swung in in a, in a certain way in that. You're right, and the people have a sense of entitlement now, I think, and, um, and don't understand that they have to work. And if they're going to have to work really hard at something, then they don't really want to, they're not interested in it. But I think that contrasts with a, um, a culture that was maybe 10, 15 years ago. I kind of always associate it with the, the Blair years, because I think there, there was that sort of, you know, this this optimism of... of um, uh, or this kind of idea, notion when new labour came into power that anything was possible, you know, um, that the, the new labour had um, uh, had thrown over this this 18 years of oppressive Tory rule. And if they could do that, then anything that was possible in the world. And so it was, you know, if you wanted to be a barrister, that was possible as long as you wanted it enough. That was fine, and, and as long as you worked at it, that you would get there. But I think what was missing from that is yes if you want it and you work hard those are two key elements but the third is that you've got to, to have the basic talent to start with and I think that's where the, the, the it kind of went wrong and, and now I think there is as you say that sort of idea of well um, hard work and hard graft isn't, isn't, isn't fashionable anymore yeah and I, I don't I'm not, I'm not saying that people can't do it I don't, I don't want to do it I, it's just that it's not the vogue isn't it and you know no, people, um, I think this idea of overnight success has sort of slightly corrupted the yeah. the attitude of some young not all younger people but some younger people because yeah. you know they watch the telly and they see someone went winning Britain's got talent and all that sort of stuff but even those people yeah. you know even those people have been working for years and years and years and years very few of them you know wake up one day and discover they can actually sing you know they've all been doing something yes. beforehand haven't they the good ones anyway the magicians exactly. they've all practiced you've got to, you've got to do that piece yeah um, exactly that's really interesting um, i mean you've talked a lot about i mean you raised the subject of personal resilience but you've definitely you've absolutely demonstrated some of the fundamentals you know you've talked about having a clear sense of purpose focusing on your strengths you know, making very clear yeah. choices about the world. And I think when you're making choices, you're taking responsibility and, you know, growing accountability for yourself, aren't you? And I think that's something that people forget. You know, it's making choices about your yeah. skills and abilities and choices rolling forward. I know you've just made a, a big sort of career um, development to move to a more co- portfolio yes. way of working. And, you know, it's scary yeah. to make a choice, isn't yes. it? But sometimes you just have to do what you've done before, which is just throw yourself in and go for it I think that's right I think you have to um, I, I think that the, the key to, all, to a lot of that is um, self-awareness and, and self-knowledge I think you've got to be absolutely honest with yourself and and understand what your strengths are but also understand what you know where your weaknesses are what what, what you have to watch out for and what are the things that that are um, within your own personality and within your own abilities that are likely to trip you up, and um, and, and I think that's that's the, the start of it. And once you've done that, I think it's much easier to say, okay, um, 
I'm going to I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to make a difficult choice here, um, but I know that these are the things that are in my favour. And uh, if I can avoid the, the pitfalls that I know exist within my own personality, my own abilities, even if it doesn't quite work out the way that I think it, I or I hope I, it's going to, I have things to fall back on. I have some abilities and and um, and other things to to do. Um, and I think that's that's got to be the approach. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate because I've always had people behind me. You know, I've um, I've I've got uh, yeah, I had my parents when I was younger, and I've got my, my my husband and my my children now. And so it's much easier when you've got that um, behind you to make those sort of difficult decisions. Um, but um, I think that the key to it really is understanding. Um, your own ability and your own um, limits, but also knowing that if that, that you can you, you can work through difficult times and difficult things. Um, and I look back on the, the low points in my career and the hard times and and uh, horrible though they were, um, I never starved. I never um, I never knew didn't know you know what the next thing or, or where I was going to go the next day or how, or how I was going to get in or I never didn't have a plan. Um, so I think that's what you've got to, to, to remember. That's, um, that's a real message of hope. It's a good place to finish. So if, I know if, if anyone would like to sort of, um, you know, contact you and talk with you, perhaps, you know, there's a school out there who would be interested in talking to you because actually you've got a message of real pragmatism and hope for people. I mean, how, how would you be interested in helping people with that sort of thing? Absolutely, very. Um, I'm very keen to, um, you know, really encourage people to, um, you know, not think that law or, uh, um, you know, a profession is not for them because they're from a certain type of background or a certain type of, um, uh, you know, social environment, whatever it is. And I'd be really happy to to talk to anybody who wants to to listen about that and and um, how I, you know the, the way that they can approach um, their. Um, their careers and, and, and attitude towards careers and how it might help. So very happy to help. And I know um, the, because of the nature of your working life, it's impossible for you to help individuals, but you're more than happy to help groups or networking groups or something along those lines. So um, if anybody would like Absolutely. to talk to you, if anyone wants to talk to you, the best thing I think to do is drop us a line and we can pass it on to Anu because she's not a... She's not. She's not running a business in this area. She's someone who's just an inspirational person working in the law. I think who I wanted to interview, wanted to talk to for many for a long time. Actually, you know, it's been taking us a while to get this podcast yes. together, hasn't it? It has taken us a while, but I'm glad we got there. Yeah, with many shoes have been bought in the process of arranging this um, <laughs> this podcast. For those who don't know, go on. <laughs> absolutely yes but uh, but we got there in the end I'm very pleased to say well thanks so much for this it's been really really interesting and fascinating I think for other people to listen to and, and I really enjoyed it as well because I'm you know I've known you for a while but didn't hadn't realized all those things you were talking about so thanks so much for spending some time with us and um, thank you again not at all Russell it's been a real pleasure thank you take care thanks for listening today I hope we really got some value from that I certainly enjoyed it myself Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience Unraveled, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a, a preview or a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com 
or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward to you joining us on the next edition of Resilience Unraveled. Thank you.